This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. Hello, I'm Josh. Hello, and I'm Tom Scrag, and we're both here today with Dr. Alison Kirkpatrick from Yale University, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're here to give a talk at the uh, Staff Army Regions Conference. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what you were talking about and how you think it went? So my work centers around uh, finding black holes in galaxies. So every galaxy has a supermassive black hole at the center of it. And these black holes have to build up their mass in the same way that a galaxy has to build up its stellar mass. And it turns out that the universe is pretty boring now. It was much more exciting 10 billion years ago and in an area that we call cosmic noon. So we have cosmic dawn that was about a billion years after the Big Bang is when we start to look for the first galaxies and then galaxies are building up their gas and their stars and then right around 10 billion to 7 billion years ago we have cosmic noon. So that that is the area where I look at. That's where 50% of the stars that we see today were formed at cosmic noon. And now the universe is in decline. And the word maybe, I don't know, cosmic afternoon. Um, (laughs) But these galaxies were building up their stars and their black holes at the same time. We can't resolve it. We just can see the global emission. So the integrated emission from the whole galaxy. And I particularly look at dusty galaxies where this dust is hiding all of these stars and these black holes. And so my job is is kind of to play Sherlock Holmes and to try and disentangle the dust emission and to figure out how much of it is hiding stars and how much of it is hiding a central supermassive black hole. Okay, let's come back to that. Okay. Quick question, how do you tell the difference between a dusty and a non-dusty galaxy then, if they're faint and far away? Yeah, that's a great question. So astronomers really like to look in the optical, and that would be the images that people are familiar with, the beautiful images from the Hubble Space Telescope. They're optical images of galaxies. When you have a lot of dust, you won't see anything in the optical. But what you will see is a lot of emission in the infrared. And infrared is the light of heat. It is light that you and I are giving off if we were to look at an infrared telescope. It's the reason that your car gets hot, because all of this UV and optical light comes in. It gets absorbed by material and radiated in the infrared. So dust acts the exact same way in a galaxy. It absorbs all this optical light and radiates it. So the things that I look at are very, very bright in the infrared. They're very easy to see. We can see them from ground-based telescopes. Okay, so it's a selection based on dim visibly, but bright yes, in infrared. Yes, exactly. Okay. All right, so to go back to one of the other things you said, how do you then tell the difference between the stars and the black hole in that galaxy? That takes a lot of finesse. So stars will give off these key features called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, what we call PAHs. We have them on Earth. You can actually find them if you smoke a cigarette. You will be exhaling PAHs from the cigarette smoke. But when we look at them in galaxies, they represent young stars. And so we see these key spiky features from these very delicate molecules. And we know that those arise in areas that are forming stars. Now, we think that what happens to those molecules if there's a black hole is that it's possible that the emission from a black hole is strong enough that it destroys them. But there's also dust, there's a dust torus surrounding a black hole. So let me back up and tell you the structure. So you have your central supermassive black hole that's a million times the mass of the sun. Then you have a disk of gas that is accreting onto this black hole. As this disk speeds up, as the gas in the disk speeds up, you get optical and x-ray light from it. 
Then beyond that disk of gas, then you have a torus of dust, and a torus is like a donut shape. And this dust absorbs that UV and optical light from the accretion disk. And it will get very hot and it radiates a very boring spectrum. We call it a power law spectrum. So it's basically just a line of radiation going from one microns to 10 microns. And so that's the key signature that lets you know that you have a black hole rather than stars. Because with dust that's hiding stars, you'll see these PAH features. You'll see some absorption from silicate dust as well. And then you'll also see right around five microns, uh, you'll see basically just a dip in a spectrum, which is due to not, there's not a lot of dust radiating emission there. But all of that is just completely obscured by a black hole. Right, so the black hole absorbs this signal? Or? So it outshines it. So it's still, so, so this is the tricky part. Right. So here in the, in what we call the local universe, you can resolve your galaxy and you can look at a disk and then you can also look at the center and you can point your telescope at different points in the galaxy. 10 billion years ago, you can't do that. The resolution of the telescope is just not good enough unless you're talking about something like ALMA. So we have a couple of telescopes that can resolve these galaxies, but for the most part, our infrared telescopes can't. And so all you see is the emission from the entire galaxy grouped together into one spectrum. So if you have a very luminous black hole at the center, we call it an active galactic nuclei, then that light will be so bright that it will outshine the disk of the galaxy where the stars are forming, and so you won't see that. So how does your black hole actually shine? Like the, it's the, the accretion the, disk. It's okay. not the hole itself, right? It is the material outside the black hole that is falling onto it. It is just moving so fast that it gives off a lot of light. A slightly side question. Okay. One of the big discussions in astronomy at the moment is dark matter. Uh-huh. And one of the reasons for postulating dark matter is galaxies spin very fast. Yeah. Too fast. Yeah. For the apparent mass. Yeah. Could black holes be the missing mass? That is a good question. Probably not. And the reason has to do with galaxy size. We don't really appreciate how big a galaxy is. So our sun is what we're about eight kiloparsecs from the center of our galaxy. So that's 8,000 parsecs. A parsec is four light years. So we're about 32,000 light years. So it would take light 32,000 years to travel to the center of our galaxy. So even though you have something at the center of our galaxy that is a million times the mass of our sun, it's really only affecting the stars right around it. It's not responsible for the fast spin of something like our sun way out 32,000 light years away. So that's why we think that we have dark matter all the way out here is that the black hole is just, if it was just the black hole, we would be moving slower than we are. Right. So although they're super massive, they're not really that. Massive on the scale of the galaxy. That's right. Yeah, okay. Where does all the mass of these supermassive black holes come from? So you've said it's, what, 100 million times the mass of the sun? Are there theories as to how something this heavy has come about? That is a good question. So that gets into a a realm called seed black holes, so S-E-E-D, and that is controversial. This is something that people are hoping to look at redshifts of 6 to 10, which would be 12 to 13 billion years ago. It's only a couple billion years after the Big Bang. So we don't know. It could either be direct collapse of very, very massive stars, like somehow the universe was able to form very, very massive stars in its early day, and those direct collapse and those form seed black holes. And seed black holes are only like a few thousand 
masses, and then these seed black holes all collide and build up, and you get a million solar mass black hole all the way up to 100 million solar masses. This is something that we are hoping to be able to study with the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be launching in October 2018. Uh, we're hoping to constrain theories of black hole formation because right now it's an open problem. And the James Webb is an infrared telescope? That's right. It's going to be <clears throat> NASA's next flagship mission, the successor to Hubble. So it will look at wavelengths of about 0.1 microns out to 28 microns. And it's going to have a spectrograph, which is a way to take light and split it up into all the different wave bands. And then it's going to have what we call photometers, which is what you can think of as your standard camera. It just takes an image. And the resolution of James Webb is going to be great. We're going to hopefully produce Hubble quality images, but in the infrared. So we'll be looking at the dust. Wow, that sounds exciting. So the James Webb telescope won't be able to produce the optical images that we see with Hubble? That's correct. So are they leaving Hubble up? Yes, Hubble is staying up. We're hoping to have a few years where Hubble will overlap James Webb, but if Hubble breaks, it breaks. So fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned active galactic nuclei yes. earlier. Presumably what you mean is the, the black hole at the center is actually interacting directly with its environment. Yes, So that we is get correct. a lot of radiation. And right. We can detect it. Yes. Is why are not every supermassive black hole's active AGNs? No. So our Milky Way is not. Our Milky Way, we have a dormant black hole in the center. We think it was more active in the past. There's actually people who look for relic emission. And in fact, I think we've seen recently bubbles of gas around the black hole that could have been produced during its active phase. But we think that, well, so every black hole must go through an active phase because it must accrete more of its material. It doesn't start out at 1 to 100 million solar masses. So it has to accrete the material. But the scales on which it happens is different than star formation. Star formation lasts in a galaxy for at least 200 million years, maybe a billion years, maybe a couple billion years, maybe 10 billion years. Star formation can go on for a very long time, depending on your fuel and the size of your galaxy. AGN activity is not something that we understand very well. We think that it happens on the timescales of maybe 10,000 years, but then the black hole kind of goes to sleep for a little while and it wakes back up. We call that flickering. And so there are people like me who look for correlations between the active galactic nuclei and the amount of stars that a galaxy is forming to kind of understand how those processes interplay and regulate each other. Uh, it gets very hard because they happen on very different timescales. And so you may look at a galaxy and not think that it has an AGN, but it had one, you know, just a few years ago, you're just not seeing it. And you'll see it again if you could live another 10,000 years. And so then you've missed this whole picture of galaxy evolution. This is one of the reasons why AGN feedback is still very much an open question of how the growing black hole affects its host galaxy. It's very much an open question. In discussions I've had with people who've mm -hmm. been at this conference, we've talked about the idea of AGN feedback blowing out the dust right. and gas from mm -hmm. within the galaxy. So is there a way to look at the amount of gas and dust that is within a galaxy and infer how long an AGN has been active for, even if it's not currently active? Yeah, so this gets at a really interesting problem. So one of the things that we look at is something called star formation efficiency. So it is the rate that a galaxy is forming stars divided by the mass of gas that it has available to form stars. So if you're forming a lot of stars with a very little gas mass, you would have a high star formation efficiency. 
Or if you have a very low star formation rate, but a lot of gas, you'd still have a low star formation efficiency. And the idea is that things go through periods of high star formation efficiency that consumes all of their gas. So then they must immediately become quenched. And so quenched is like our word for dead galaxy. It's not forming stars anymore. And so astronomers have been trying to look for a correlation between your star formation efficiency and the amount of AGN activity that you have. Because the idea is if you have a low star formation efficiency, it could be because your AGN is consuming the gas rather than your star formation. The problem is that... Number one, such a correlation hasn't really been found universally. It depends on what wavelength you're looking at your AGN in as to how luminous it is. It depends on how you're selecting your sample. The other problem is, is that it could be that your black hole is consuming all of this gas in the galaxy. But again, you have to remember the scales of a galaxy. Your stars could be forming 32,000 light years away from your black hole. So then you have to give all that gas the travel time to get into the black hole. So it's not obvious that you would see a correlation at all anyway. The other problem is that a black hole needs gas to grow and stars need gas to grow. And so if your star formation rate is dropping because the gas is being consumed, it's not necessarily the black hole that's doing it. Maybe the whole gas supply of the galaxy is just being shut off. So all of this gas that fuels the stars and this black hole is coming in from basically outside the galaxy. It is falling onto the galaxy. So that could just be being used up. And then it's not necessarily AGN blowing out the gas that is quenching the star formation. But this is something that we will be able to look at better with the ALMA telescope that's in Chile. Because what you want to do is to basically be able to look at your galaxy on a resolved scale. You want to look at how much gas is being eaten up in the center versus how much gas is available in the disks. And then that could really start to tell you something about whether or not the black hole is responsible for depleting the gas in the galaxy. Okay, so you need very high resolution images to do that. Yes. Okay. So how did you get into this field? What first excited you by in AGN? Um, So this is a bit of a funny story. So I didn't want to do galaxies at all. I thought galaxies were boring. wanted to do planets, of course, the exoplanets. So I got my PhD at the University of Massachusetts, and when I applied, they had a very, very outdated website that said that they did exoplanets. And so I applied, (laughs) (laughs) and I got in, and that was like... Based on visiting, it it was just a really great department, so I decided to go there and then start to ask around about projects and found out they do not, in fact, do exoplanets. They had just listed it on their website. So then I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? And I wanted to start in the summer to get a jump on the research before our classes started, and one person had funding, and she was a new faculty, and her name is Alex Pope. And so she gave me my first project, it happened to be separating... AGN from star forming galaxies, trying to do it using something that we call color selection. So looking at the color of the galaxy and I really liked it and I stuck with it. And in in the US, the PhD programs are a little bit different. They take longer. Mm -hmm. And so I had the chance to work on a couple of different projects. So I came back, did some stuff in the local universe, measuring the temperature and dust mass in local galaxies. But I preferred the higher redshift AGN. So I went back to that. Mm, Interesting. So a mistake. Yeah, it was a mistake. (laughs) Do you get to travel to the observatories much? Yeah. If at all? Uh Uh-huh, I do, I do. So a lot of my work is with the space observatories. Can't travel there. Shucks. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But I have also used Gemini on Mauna Kea. And when I used it, you, you got to go to the top of Mauna Kea. They don't do that anymore. It's remote observing down at the base of the mountain, which I think is a real shame. And I've also been observing with Keck. 
Keck also, you do not go to the summit of Mauna Kea, but you can go to Waimea in Hawaii and do your observing there. And then I've been to the Large Millimeter Telescope, which is a collaboration between the University of Massachusetts and Mexico, and that is down in Puebla, Mexico. And I've been there. That one's at like 15,500 feet. So you get to the observatories, you don't necessarily get to the top. These observatories are at altitude. Mm -hmm. So why are you putting the telescope so high up? Because you're looking through less of the atmosphere. And that's ultimately why you want to go to space, because you have no atmosphere to look through. So Keck and Gemini have used it to look into the near-infrared. And the problem with the near-infrared is that you have a lot of atmospheric transmission lines. For example, like water, just molecules that are in our atmosphere that would absorb all of this light coming in. So the higher up you go, the less of the atmosphere that you have to deal with. And then we also have something called the atmospheric seeing. And this is why stars twinkle. So if you ever go outside at night and you see a star twinkling, and you can tell some night stars twinkle more, if you're able to see them more, then you can turn to your friend and say that the atmospheric seeing is worse tonight. Because <laughs> the atmospheric seeing, it's kind of like being at the bottom of a pool and looking up, and you're seeing the light go through all the water and get refracted, and our atmosphere does the same thing. So the less that we have to deal with, the better. Thanks very much, Alison. Thanks for your time, and thanks for coming in to see us. Okay, thank you.